you know, we thank you. We thank you for the year that has been. It's, it, none of us could have predicted the things that happened. It's a reminder that, um, you know, we make our plans, but we are finite beings. We have dreams and goals and aspirations. We have projects we pursue, but you, you see the future. We don't. We make projections, but you know what happens. And um, I, I just, I know that you invite us into humility, even as you invite us to embrace this new year. And to turn our heart towards you is a good thing. And so I want to ask you to speak your wisdom into our lives. And to whatever degree we can, <clears throat> each one of us has to take ownership of our own heart. But to whatever degree we can, I pray that we drop our guards and have a degree of openness before you. So I ask this together. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen, Lord. So again, the, the new year um, is already, well, we're already you know, four days into the new year beginning. This, so some of us started, and I, because, just because I, I have a little bit more exposure to a broader um, layer of the church community, uh, along with the other pastoral staff here, I, I, mean, I know that there are a lot of us that, that maybe we started this year, it wasn't great. It's just, in fact, we've, we've started the year under duress. And if someone really was aware of our story, they would acknowledge that, that there's some things that are happening in our lives that are not easy. And so I, I need to say that at the beginning because I don't want to assume that everybody's in a really good, but there are, there are others of us that we actually started very hopefully and we're pretty excited about where things are going. And then of course, there's a number of us who are in between. You know, we've got some things that are going well, well for us and we're pretty excited about, but then there are other things that are concerning and we feel the weight of them and we actually have some stress because of them. And so it's kind of a mixed bag. So what I'm trying to suggest is we all enter into the new year with our, with our own unique things. But no matter how we entered, no matter how we are entering, I'm going to suggest that it's a time of opportunity. Um, some of the greatest opportunity growth places in my life have come actually from the worst periods of my life. Um, broken places, although undesired, are nonetheless places where growth can often occur in profound ways, in sacred ways. And so uh, I, wanna, I guess I want to ask you to consider doing something. I want us to possibly think about New Year's as not a day or even a week but I want us to think about it as a month. I would like to think of this New Year's month as having a unique opportunity in it. The month itself can become a keystone or a word that's very important to us, a cornerstone of how the entire rest of the year plays itself out, what we build upon. It becomes a kind of platform point. And so if we can think of it in a more comprehensive way, like decisions we make in the next couple of weeks can have tremendous impact. And so a big part of what we're trying to do here is inspire one another to pursue the best things. And then to get at some of us considering building out the front of our year in a very successful way, at least as God defines success. So with that in mind, the first passage that we're gonna to examine together, the first passage of the new year that we're actually sharing from, is maybe not a typical New Year's passage, but it's a passage that spoke to me and I hope we'll have life in it. It's from the third chapter of the book of John. It has to do with a conversation that Jesus had with a very well-educated, highly, you know, highly lettered intellectual man named Nicodemus. I want to use it as a launching point for discussing what it means to grow. We were born to grow. And so here we go. Uh, John 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse number 1. There was a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish religious leader. He was a Pharisee. We're told a lot right now. Just the opening movement is there was this man. His name was Nicodemus. We're told he was a Jewish religious leader and he was a Pharisee. At the time of Jesus... When Jesus was beginning his ministry, this is the outset, this is towards the beginning point. Israel uh, was, as so much of the world at that time, um, ruled 
by the decree of Rome. Rome ruled a huge swath of the world, of the known world specifically. And it was the great Pax Romana at some level, the great peace of Rome that had come because they had subdued every alternative power. And it was enforced. One of the places that it had been enforced in was what Rome designated as a region. They named it this, by the way, and the, name, the region still carries the name Palestine. Uh, but Israel had been there for years, sometimes conquered, sometimes um, subservient. They had been given, because they were a difficult people at the time to rule, they had been given some degree of latitude in terms of their religious and sort of social um, constructs. They were given some degree of freedom as long as they remembered who they owed submission to. That was Rome. So Rome tended to give them more space to operate. The two dominant religious political parties of the day, they had a two-party system as well. Um, that Rome allowed them to have. but They were religious in nature. It was this, a group called the Sadducees um, and the group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were uh, the more conservative of the two. They, uh, again, both these parties existing at the time of Jesus. And you, when you read the Gospels, you'll see these names, these references come up. But, but the Pharisees were the more conservative of the group. They were, they were actually very devout. They were, they were uh, scrupulous when it came to wanting to honor the law of Moses, the scriptures, what we call the Older Testament. They were more rigid also, but at the same time, it was, they, were, they were devout, they were sincere. And, you know, again, by the way, when it says that Nicodemus was a, a Pharisee, so what I'm trying to get at is, it didn't mean it as an insult. He literally was a Pharisee. He was part of a Pharisee party. He was highly respected. He was older, had to be. To be on the Jewish leadership governing body, you had to be an agent. You had to be old. You had to be old enough to do it. There was an age component to it. He was older, as he will confess later. He was also highly educated, highly respected. Um, he was a man who we would say is sophisticated and at some level urbane. But today, when we think of the idea of Pharisaical, when someone says, hey, he's acting like a Pharisee, she's acting like a Pharisee, don't be Pharisaical. When you look at, that's not a good thing. We would all agree. I think most of it, it typically means hypocrite. When we say they're a Pharisee, it usually means someone who's censorious, that is extremely critical, or self-righteous. And again, the term itself is derived from the interactions of Jesus with the Pharisees. But in this particular case, Nicodemus was actually a man who was drawn to Jesus. He, he was intrigued by Jesus. He, when he heard him speak, there was a part of his genuine desire to follow God that was compelled to want to have an additional conversation with Jesus. He hoped to have some private time with him uh, to ask some questions because he is revealed here as a man of deep religious conviction. And he had, again, heard Jesus intrigued, curious, perhaps even drawn. He comes, though, cautiously, carefully, reluctantly, almost embarrassed to be seen. He doesn't want people to know. He certainly doesn't want his peers to know that he wants to meet more with Jesus. Remember, Nicodemus is older. He has a, a significant pedigree. That means he's very educated. Jesus was younger. He had no letters at all. There were no degrees attached to his name. He had come from Nazareth, but he was saying things that were, were stunning and almost unbelievable. And he was saying things about himself. And there were certain people who were actually very intrigued, even though they knew that their peers did not necessarily hold the same position. It's not unlike um, today 
someone may have a very devout, some of us may have a very devout love for the Lord. We may genuinely build our life around sort of a biblically informed life. We, we approach life with a sense of what, what we feel like the Lord wants us to do. It's important to us to be a follower of Jesus. It's, our, it's a big part. We gave our life to him. We welcomed him into our lives. It's made a huge difference in our lives. We love the Lord. We sing about that love. But then there are some environments where that is really respected, and people go, that's, that's great. There are other environments where people go, yeah, it's okay, that's your thing, it's cool. And then there's another environment where some of us work, and I know that because I've talked to more than a few, where sometimes just the nature of the culture or the environment or the misperceptions of who Jesus is, the kind of stereotypes that are connected to it, make it sometimes a little bit difficult to share in an authentic way, in a more overt way, about the sincerity and depth of our faith because we're afraid that we would be put into a box. Therefore, we sometimes pull back. That's exactly what happened with Nicodemus. You know what we know? We know, look what it says at the beginning of verse number two. He came to him during the night. Why? Because he didn't want anybody to see him. It says that after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. We know he was a, kind of like felt awkward about it. There were people in his primary social group. I mentioned his colleagues who did not think highly of Jesus at the time, saw him more as a threat. Others would have been shocked that someone of your stature would go and meet with him. But he was, he was drawn. So he did what he thought was the best he could do. He, he arranged evidently a meeting, probably through one of Jesus' disciples. I would like to meet with Jesus. I prefer to do it at night, not in a public way. It says that he came. It says, a dark, dark one evening he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, notice the interaction. Rabbi, he says, that's teacher. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Um, one of the first things that becomes clear here is that when Nicodemus approaches Jesus, he, some people say, oh, well, he was a coward. He came, he came secretly. He couldn't even come like it. He was ashamed to be seen with Jesus. But in my mind, at least, okay, that might be true, but you know what? At least he came. And it's a reminder to me that, you know, God, the Lord will work with us. He will work with us. And it's like, well, I'm not sure, you know, he'll work with us even when we struggle to get to him. If we're humble enough to get there, it's okay. Not everybody comes to Jesus the same way. Some of us come real easy, and we let it be known, I'm open and I'm ready. Others of us, we come like Nicodemus, stealthily, a little clandestine, undercover. But we come, and God starts to do stuff. When he meets Jesus, he says to him, and look at the way he approaches Jesus. He says, you are a, he's, his first statement is, Rabbi. Now, he's a, he is older than, he's, an, he's a leader, he's powerful. Rabbi. Um, and look what he affirms. We, we all know that God has sent you, look at this, to teach us. To, wow, that is a, that is a humbling position. Um, he accords Jesus a dignity that many of his peers were denying Jesus. He says, we recognize you are a teacher sent from God. You're a prophet of the Lord of some types. The things that you do reflect that. We cannot argue with that. It is impossible to refute what we've seen with our own eyes. We believe your words speak truth to us. Um, I would like to have an interaction with you on some issues. That's basically what's implied here. Jesus responds. Look at the response. Not what we would have expected. There was not a mutual, ah, Rabbi Nicodemus. No, that's not what happens. It says, Jesus replied, it's almost like the Lord cuts right into the core of the issue. You've come here because you want to know who I am. And I will tell you something. Look what he says. He says, look, I tell you this truth. Unless you are born again, you will not see 
truly see what God is actually doing before your eyes. You will not be able to see the kingdom of God that is at work before your very eyes. The thing that you are drawn to, you will not be able to see it. You're going, and, and when he says that, it's, again, it's almost startling. It's almost like he's looking at him and saying, look, to, to, you cannot truly know who I am unless you have a rebirth. A spiritual awakening needs to occur in you. You are, in Nicodemus's case, you are locked into a system. And no matter some of the beauty contained in it, ancient and true, it is to you at present a hindrance. You must be prepared to break with some of what you've adhered to because, because God is doing a new thing. And if you are to see it, and it's going to require you to transition your spiritual thinking. You're going to have to look at something very differently than you've been looking at it. Now, then Nicodemus, we know when Jesus says you must be born again, he gets stuck. He, in his mind, he's trying to, he gets stuck on that phrase, born again. He goes, what are you talking about? Now we see his struggle. I don't understand what you're saying, because Jesus was using metaphor. Well, I don't understand what you're saying. What are you really saying? How is it, Nicodemus hears it literally. He says, no, I don't understand. What do you mean? Is it, how can a man of my age be reborn and come out from my mother. What are you talking about? This makes no sense to me. He says, look, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, no, I, I, listen to me. I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and the spirit. Some people say well, that's referring to baptism. Others say, no, it's the natural birth and the spiritual birth. Clearly, verse, verse 6 is contrasting natural and spiritual birth. Humans can reproduce only human life, but Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. I'm talking about being born again in the Spirit. So don't be surprised when I say, don't, why do you marvel? Don't be caught off guard when I say to you, you must be born again. What I'm talking about isn't physical. I'm talking about a spiritual opening up of something in your life, a birthing of something new. The wind blows, Jesus says, listen, wherever it wants. It, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it, it comes from or even where it's going. In the same way, look at this, you can't, you can't really explain how people are born of the Spirit. It's almost like he's saying there's an element of a spiritual dynamic here that is untraceable and mysterious. And in a sense, it stretches us beyond natural constructs. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and then... You can feel the exasperation of Nicodemus because he's trying to track with Jesus. And even though he knows a whole lot, he's not getting it. And he says, I don't understand how this thing can even be possible. What are you talking about? And Jesus, if you were to keep reading, and I didn't put this in the handout, but, it, but he goes on, he, he, he says, I, he goes, have you been a teacher so long in Israel that you cannot understand what I'm saying? Then Jesus prepares to take him through something that is directly a statement about who he is, but he uses himself as a reference point in the third person. You jump down to verse 13, and some of this is going to make sense. Some of it's not going to make sense immediately. No, Jesus goes on in the conversation. He says, listen, no one has ascended to heaven but the one who came down from heaven. The Son of Man who is in heaven. He says, look, essentially, I have come from a place to show you who God is. He's making a claim. It's a stunning claim. It's, it's like, it's, it's something that's going to rock Nicodemus as it rocks any of us. And then Jesus, what he does after he makes that claim, this incredible statement about where he's come from and his divinity, he then uses an example that when we read it, most of us would have no idea what it's referring to. 
unless we had a real familiarity with the Old Testament, because he picks some obscure thing in the Old Testament that occurred when the people of the children of Israel were being led out of Egypt. Many of us know about that, when they were led out of Egypt and it, what we call the Exodus. And as they were being led out, they eventually were in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they had an encampment. And it's described in detail in Numbers 21. And in that encampment, they were plagued. The, the people were plagued by these, these snakes that were, were poisonous and were killing people. And Moses begins to plead with God. It's like I said, it's an obscure account. He begins to plead with God. And the only time this ever happened, anything like this happened, God says, I want you to get a, a, serpent, a bronze serpent and put it onto a pole. And when, they, when the people see it on the, on the pole, they'll be healed. And Jesus makes this statement. He's going back in time, and he uses it as an illustration. He says, That's the, way, the same way that Moses used that as a saving mechanism, he's basically saying that in the same way that the people were healed by looking at uh, to that servant on the pole, if you will, so will the Son of Man be lifted up for salvation and healing of those who will look upon him. He's using his hand in the same way I am going to be lifted up as the healer. He's talking about the cross right here. And then he goes on to say very clearly, he says, listen, that whoever believes in him, speaking of himself, should not perish but have eternal life. The purpose of me giving my life will be for the healing and the life-giving that I am offering on behalf of God. And then he goes on to say what is the most incredible state, I think, if you really think about it, the verse that is most quoted in human history, the most well-known verse ever, is directly connected to this conversation. Because then Jesus says this, listen, for God so loves this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have life undying, everlasting, overflowing. For God did not send his son, he says Nicodemus, into this world to condemn it. Death's all over it anyway. He sent his son into this world that it might be saved. Do you understand? The, the incredible piece to me is that the, that verse is given to... Because we have that incredible verse that contains the good news of Jesus in its, in its like the nut of the fruit is right there. It's like the center. The good news, why I've come. And it came, that is given to us and has been a blessing for generations out of a conversation of someone who wanted to talk to Jesus but was ashamed to do so, so he came in the night. It's incredible. Now, as I was thinking about it, what, what, is, what is it that I, uh, was connecting for me in this new year and this whole idea of born to grow? I mean, clearly God was calling Nicodemus to a growing place. But my larger thought had to do with uh, the fact that Jesus was working with Nicodemus. He was trying to move him somewhere, just like, um, like to a new way of seeing things. And it's like he was moving him to a new season of growth and understanding. He was trying to expand his understanding of what God was doing. And if I may say this at the outset of our new year, I have a question I'm hoping will prevail. What are the things that God is possibly trying to move us into? Expand our understanding around. Open us up to. What is it that he desires? I, you know, I find really tremendous solace and comfort and encouragement in the way in which Jesus works with Nicodemus. I really do, because Nicodemus, as we are apt to do, was struggling. He was wrestling with his thoughts. He was not, he was scared, he was cautious, he was intrigued, he was confused, yet he was drawn. Moving spiritually forward, listen, will often involve those similar types of emotions. 
And it may even involve struggle. Um, in my mind, holy ground is often found in the midst of struggle. Holy ground is often found in the midst of struggle. It's in the struggling places of our life that we really find the holy ground. I've often said this as well, that just as a man, a new life is birthed out of pain and travail, so breakthrough and new birth in us often comes as a result of painful places. That's why some, not all loss is loss and not all gain is gain. That's why some of the worst places can be the best places because God can use that to humble us and to break us to birth new things. I was thinking about how when something is birthed, when life is birthed, the process of birthing is a very painful thing at times. You know, years ago, 26 years ago, when my wife and I, we had our oldest son, and from the children that followed, it was like, I remember that. I was there indirectly experiencing things. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like following orders, and I was, I remember, I remember, you know, I don't, there's, Things have changed now, and people are doing it. But I was just kind of there doing what I was told. And, and I just remember the, the amount of travail. And, and, and there was genuine pain, like epidural-level pain going on, you know. And I could tell it was there. And, and I, I, what happened, though, is when the baby came, my son Caleb came, it, as the, would be the case with all the other three as well, um, there was a moment also of tremendous joy and the sorrow the pain, maybe that's a better way to say it, the, the enormous pain in, that was going into that was overwhelmed by the life and the joy of that life. Do you understand what Jesus is getting at? He, he's, there's something there about this conversation he's having and the conversation he wants with all of us. The places we're afraid of, the places where we, we have difficulty, these are places where we can have, a, have tremendous life come if we will allow God in the process. If, this is something I've come to know and believe deeply. Uh, it's still not easy to go through things because the dark chapters, the difficult places, none of us wants them. Why would we? But then on the other hand, God brings forth life. That's what a cross represents, death. But out of that cross comes life, and it's a life we all share in. I have two pieces of scripture from the New Testament that I want us to sit with to anchor what we've just been thinking about here. One of them, you can see it, it's found in the middle column at the bottom it's from Ephesians 4. Quickly, the apostle writes these words. I want you to think about it in light of where we're going in these coming weeks. That we should know. He's talking, to, he's talking to people who are following Jesus. He says that we should no longer be children, just tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness of deceitful plies. He's using these extravagant phrases to, to make a case that don't be a gullible person spiritually. Have a mooring point. Be solid. Don't be a person who goes from here to there, emotionally driven, ungrounded in your knowledge base. Be a person, if you're going to follow Jesus, who has a depth to your life that allows your faith to sustain itself even when things are not going well and even when we are actually making bad decisions and hurting ourselves. He goes on to say, but speaking the truth in love, my prayer is that you may grow up in all things to him who is the head even into Christ. What he's saying basically is, my prayer for all of you is that we would all become more like Jesus. That we would grow up into him. The phrase to and fro has to do with something that is unstable. God wants to teach us how to be moored in Jesus, how to grow into his likeness. What does that even mean? When someone says, uh, let's, I want to be more like Jesus, well, what does that really mean? I mean, at least in part, it, it has to do with our character. 
It has to do with something about the type of person we are, the way we love God, the way we love others, especially those we've been called to love better. Will we keep our commitments real tough in an era that has a hard time doing it? And the way we learn to love ourselves, not in a self-absorbed, egotistical way, but in a healthy way that allows us then to be free to love others better. A lot of times I've talked to people over the years that the real struggle is to see ourselves as one loved by God. And it doesn't mean there aren't things we can do to disappoint God or even hurt him or drive him away from us. We can. But the truth is a lot of us, a lot of us sometimes struggle with things of our past. And as a result, we don't really see ourselves that way. We have a very hard time loving others um, healthily. One of the things the Lord does is he's a healer. He's a healer. He heals us through fits and stages and wrestling places, but he heals us nonetheless if we're willing to walk with him. Again, it's not how we come, it's if we're willing to come. So I think about it, it shows up in the way we handle our anger. Becoming more like Jesus is going to show up. So these are all things for the new year. How are we, how are we handling our anger? How are we dealing with our hurts? How are we allowing our wounds to be healed? It maybe have to do with something that someone else did, but, but it hurt us deeply. What about our, our addictions, which we, all, many of us will struggle. We've never had a more addicted time than this, ever. There's been a stunning advancements in technology that have allowed us to have so much blessing, amazing stuff. But the, addiction, the addictive levels, the, the toxicity of culture is at unparalleled heights. It's very destructive as well as brilliant. We are all part of it. That's why it's so hard to manage our soul and relationships because we deal with a low level of, of sort of stuff all the time that is designed to get us the way we're wired. It, it's, it's, it, these, what I'm saying is the Lord wants to even be there with us. Um, it's going to show up in the way we work through our sin, our pride, our despairing places. It's going to talk. It's going to affect the, the words we speak, the things we do, the way we give, the way we forgive, the way we receive forgiveness, which is not always easy. There are times when we're going to be invited to embrace what we call as followers of Jesus a cross, His cross. Sometimes that has to do with surrendering. We say, I've had uh, people say to me, you know, we really need to embrace the cross of Jesus. What does that mean? Partly what it means is, is to surrender to the example of the Lord and all that he won for us by giving himself for us. Sometimes the Lord will say, this is a cross I want you to take and you need to trust me in this dark place. It's okay. We'll make it. It's not easy. It's going to involve struggle, but it's okay. I'm with you. Here's the point. Here it is. Whether we've been following Jesus for five weeks, five months, five years, five decades, the question that center stage really is, am I growing into more of his likeness? The last passage we'll look at right there, third column, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, very important piece. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run. We all have a race to run. It's not a sprint, by the way. It's a long-haul run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That means we have to have principles that hold us when we feel like giving up. 
One of the ways we do this, he says, verse 2, looking unto Jesus, our great example and our present help, the author and the finisher, the assister, the completer of our faith, the initiator of it, who gave us not only an example, but will give us his presence, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, went through it, beat it, defeated it, despised the shame, threw it off, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What are the two principles that are really being highlighted here in my mind? One is laying aside, and the other one is looking unto. Laying aside and looking unto. This is something I want to hopefully have us thinking about as we move into this month, this New Year's month. Because what, what is it that God might be saying to us? It may involve the elimination, the laying aside of certain habits or practices that have become actually hindrances to us in our spiritual life and growth and love with God. That they have become distractions, actually growth inhibitors. They're holding us back. Not all things are bad. Sometimes we often say even some things that are even good can be the enemy of the better things that God's trying to do. It, it's, it's just the point is this. That it's going to require us periodically relaunching. It's going to require us sometimes to have what God was trying to work into Nicodemus, a paradigm shift that allows him to be open to something new, a recommitment to certain godly practices, you know, an establishment of healthy habits. That's why we're trying to do this, because this will establish a healthy soul habit inside. If we can follow this, if we commit ourselves to trying to give our best shot at doing this, even if we have to make up ground and we don't always get the right day, what happens is we're going to be accomplishing something for the Lord in our lives. And it means something else. It means I'm taking it seriously. And when we, and so it becomes a mechanism of growth in our lives. You know, um, it was G. Campbell Morgan, I'll just finish with this quote. He said, are we more like Christ than we were? And I love this guy. By the way, if you ever want to read four commentaries on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, by G. Campbell Morgan's commentaries, they've blessed me for countless you know, years, and uh, I love the poetic style. But he says this, Are we more like Christ than we were? Let the question be asked by the soul of the Christian in the silent, secret place. When we have to have space for long thoughts. You can't do that on the fly. You can't. Am I, am I growing? Am I more like my master than I was? Am I growing? Or the phrase that got me, or has... There been an arrest in my development. Why? So that I am less than I was. I'll leave it with this. And if some of you want to write them down, it's fine. We're going to post them later. You can even take a shot, I suppose, of it. Five questions to leave with. I'm not going to, I'm just going to say them long enough to be able to note them. One or two of them might stand out. If they do, note it. One, number one is this, am I growing more like him, the one that we've been sitting with? Am I growing more like him? Two, are there some things that maybe the Lord is asking me to lay aside so that I can have another, another season of real growth in my life with God that will show up in my relationships, show up in my emotions, show up in my whole being? Are there some things that are really holding me back? Maybe there's some relationships that are just Maybe it's a practice that I've fallen into. I don't know. Are there some things, three, that we need to pursue with fresh and renewed vigor? All <laughs> things that are good, over time, we take them for granted. We can just, they start to become sort of, we're, we're accustomed to them. But God might be saying, you know, it's, it's not so much for you right now what I don't want you to do as much as it's about what I want you to do, what I'm calling you unto. So some cases laying aside, some cases looking unto. What am I inviting you to pursue? What's going to open something up for you 
You know, I, I talked about how sometimes God will give it, when we're reading his words, there have been times when we're reading them, all of a sudden his words contain a phrase, a word. It becomes a word for us, for where we are. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, that, that is my word. This is strength to me. But that would have never come if we hadn't had the habit of reading his word. But out of the reading of his word, God was able to speak to us specifically through his word. And then, and, for, and then fourthly, are there some things I need to wrestle with and invite God into? Because I know a lot of times the places we least want to invite him into are the places that we're most ashamed of. And yes, that's the place where he really wants to go. Because he's not ashamed of stuff. And us. It's okay. Nicodemus, you're coming in the night. Why do you think Jesus will even talk to you? Oh, but he does. He does. He's more, there are going to be things we're going to have to wrestle with. I've never seen it. I ne- there are no perfect followers of ever. Ever. We're all growing. And growth is not always easy. And getting free is not always easy. Last thing. Are there some dreams and goals that God wants me to pursue, that God wants us to pursue, to pray into, to get other people to pray into with me? You know, am I supposed to be bringing more people into my life? Are there hopes and promises that I'm supposed to claim as my own? I mean, these are things that, like, like at the beginning of the year, Lord, are there th- something, is there something that you're, you're saying, this is what I want you to pursue, to think, to think about and, and pray for and believe for? You know, invite others into that conversation, in that prayer. This is what I feel like God wants me to do. I want to pr- just at least pray for it. Dream about it. Now, we're going to close the service slightly differently than we normally do. As you know, part of our custom here is that we, we um, you know, we, we often have a song at the end where we sing our benediction. <laughs> we sing our good word to close. It's usually connected to the theme. And it sort of becomes our, our prayer in a song. But we're going to do a little different. We, have, we want to do is, I would like to give, uh, we'd like to give everybody a little bit of a sneak preview of where we're going in this growth month. That's what we're calling it. And so, well, afterwards, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. We'll have our time of giving and then show this little special piece here. So let me go ahead and pray. And um, Lord, I want to ask you to just take these words that we've shared. You know, we've been here about an hour together. And I want to ask you to to just take this and help us as we think about moving into the new year. I pray that some things would resonate. Some things would reverberate. They would, they would actually amplify themselves inside. And throughout the week and the days ahead, they would, would have meaning. Maybe, again, it's connected to just reading the Bible, reading that New Testament. Um, but I pray for your growth plan for all of us. I know you're calling us into places of breakthrough, even when we're sometimes in difficult places. That's okay. So I ask for your blessing, your grace, and your life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. There are over 2 million apps available for download today. If we're merely an average user, we will spend over two hours of our life every day this year using apps. That's a lot of life. But what if there were apps we could use apart from any device? A kind of life app that could teach us how to deepen our faith, help us translate our belief into action, and show us how to build lasting relationships. Join us this January as Pastor Terry and Rusty Roof share just that, a four-week message series about how to develop a faith that applies to our everyday life, built and run on the platform of Jesus Christ.